WBEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation. Plus, MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. What's up, Chicago? I'm Erin Allen, and this is The Rundown. This episode, we're going to talk about a few Supreme Court decisions that came down last week. But before I get into that, there's a previous episode of The Rundown where I talked to a lawyer from the University of Chicago about how SCOTUS got so much power and why the court is feeling so center stage in our daily lives right now. It's called, Why Are We Talking About SCOTUS So Much? At some point, I recommend listening to that if you haven't already as kind of a companion to this episode. Okay, back to this conversation. Let's get it. Last week, the Supreme Court delivered two big rulings dealing with higher education. One had to do with affirmative action. Their decision said it's unconstitutional to consider race in admissions at Harvard University and at the University of North Carolina. And this ruling could lead to big changes across the country. The ruling means higher education institutions will need to come up with new ways to create diverse student bodies. The other one focused on President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. SCOTUS decided that was unconstitutional as well. Let me begin by saying I know there are millions of Americans, millions of Americans in this country who feel disappointed and uh, discouraged or even a little bit angry about the court's decision today on student debt. And I must admit, I do too. Biden's program would have canceled up to $20,000 in student loan debt for folks making less than $125,000 a year. And it would have been the most expensive executive action ever, costing $400 billion over the course of 30 years. The administration said 26 million people applied for loan forgiveness. Today's decision has closed one path. Now we're going to pursue another. So what does this mean for the millions of people with student loans? And what happens next, both for those with debt and for those who are going to be applying to college? The SCOTUS decisions feel pretty final, but the conversation actually isn't over. Lisa Phillip is a higher ed reporter here at WBEZ, and she's been doing some extensive reporting on all this. She's here to talk it all through. Lisa, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Erin. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first off, talk about President Biden's case making for even issuing the executive action. What was his argument for the value in forgiving at least some student loan debt? Yeah, so he made this argument that a college degree is like the ticket to the middle class right now. You know, like we have research showing that college graduates have more access to jobs and higher paying jobs and earn more over their lifetimes. But of course, right now, in order to get that degree, we're having people take on oftentimes a lifetime of debt. Mm-hmm. And, and and on top of that, you know, we're coming out of this pandemic and he says people are still recovering that. They still need help. We have skyrocketing costs because of inflation. So at least issuing some one-time relief will really help people move up in economic mobility, will help them do these things that are milestones like buy homes, start families that are people – 
people are oftentimes putting off because they have student loan payments that are huge and burdensome. Some of the justices within SCOTUS find this to be a problematic reasoning. <laughs> um, what was the Supreme Court's reasoning for ruling that Biden's loan forgiveness plan was unconstitutional? Yeah, so Biden was calling on the HEROES Act, which basically allows the Secretary of Education to modify existing regulations. I'm using like very technical speech <laughs> involved in this legislation, but modifying regulations to help federal student loan borrowers in times of national emergency, which is what we just had as a result of COVID, right? So that allowed Trump, for example, to put a payment pause in place. So like people had relief from making their student mm. loan repayments. Um, Biden continued that, but then Biden took it a step further and tried to give relief to people using this act. But what Roberts and some of the other justices were saying was that the HEROES Act technically allows the executive office to modify regulations but not transform them, which is what they say giving this relief amounts to. Okay, so how what about folks in general who oppose student debt relief? What what are their opinions? Yes. Yeah, so there's the argument out there that the debt burden falls on the individual. These are individual choices that people are making they in order to pursue higher education and they should be responsible for making these payments and paying these loans back, right? Um and then also there was the the argument too that this was too costly for more than four hundred billion dollars. Mm. What Biden pointed out, I would like to point out myself <laughs> when he was reacting to the Supreme Court decision on Friday is that many of the people who oppose debt relief didn't have any problem forgiving PPP loans to mm. business owners that mm. were incurred during the pandemic. And that, according to um Reporting has amounted to more than $700 billion in forgiven loans. But those have gone mostly to business owners, whereas debt relief is, you know, going to largely American workers earning less than $125,000 a year. So how has President Biden responded to those points? Yeah, um, of, of you know, it being on the burden of the individual yeah. borrower and such. You know, he's saying like higher education is something that people need to do in order yeah. to get ahead. And like this is the best option for earning more and earning a sustainable wage. But the problem, again, is that federal support for higher education has not kept up with the rising cost of tuition. So like, for example, mm -hmm. Pell Grants only cover a fraction of the cost of tuition. And Pell Grants, just to be clear about what those are, they're for students from lo the lowest income brackets. Um, so you, for even like the neediest students, what the federal government is providing is only amounting to a part of what their college costs are, right? And like they are then having to borrow um, and, you know, these are people who are coming from communities that lack um, intergenerational wealth, mm -hmm. like people from communities of color often are holding the most amount of student debt. Um, I talked to Kristen McGuire from Young Invincibles. She's the executive director of Young Invincibles, which is a group that advocates for young people, basically. Um, and this is a huge issue that they work on as student debt, of course, because it's one of the biggest economic barriers for young people. But she talked about, um, in this bit of tape that we're going to listen to, she talked about some of the repercussions of student debt, especially for communities of color and women. 
Black women hold the majority of the debt because we also have to go get advanced degrees. These people usually work with zero or negative uh, generational wealth. The financial responsibility of college becomes greater. Um, and when she's saying negative generational wealth, that's like actually th- there's there's debt in the in the previous generation as well. Potentially, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, she talks about how, you know, not only y- your parents might have debt, um, but then also your parents aren't able to cover or help you with the cost of college, right? And a lot of people are still making this argument of individual responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I also talk, talk to um, Lily Rocha, who's also from Young Invincibles, but she's from Young Invincibles Midwest. And she talked about this kind of like false choice that we as Americans have in pursuing higher education. So we're going to hear some tape from her as well. This is a choice that we made, but it was also a choice that we made because we were told it was the right choice. We did it to achieve economic prosperity. So it's kind of almost ironic that it's now impacting our ability to um, to achieve those milestones. So let's talk about what's happening here in Illinois specifically. Um, you were making a lot of calls <laughs> last week um, looking for reactions to the SCOTUS decision. Um, I know that you were talking to folks even before the decision actually came down. What have you been hearing from people? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm hearing from a lot of people who have seen the repayment pause as it's just alleviated so much of their stress, financial anxiety and Mm -hmm. helped them really like get through this time financially. And I talked to Amir Najem, who is um, he graduated from DePaul. He's from Chicago originally. He had graduated from DePaul, right? But he has a family. He has three kids now. And he's been working um, for the city of Chicago. But he really saw higher education as this opportunity to make more money, um, build up generational wealth, help secure his kids' future, and then he heard about the student debt relief program. And he has about $20,000 in debt. And because he was a Pell Grant recipient, he would have been eligible for $20,000 in debt relief. So his undergrad debt would have basically been wiped out. So wow. he was like, I applied for this. It seemed amazing. And then he made this decision, too, to go back to school and get a master's degree. So he took on more debt for that, right? Oh. Um, and... So, you know, I talked to him about his feelings about student debt relief and the SCOTUS decision. I felt like I was duped in a way. You know, it was like right around the election. It was like very calculated, Um, you know, and then it was struck down. The loan uh, pause was it was great, you know, not paying it. But now in reality, that's extra two years of loan payments that I'm going to have to make up. Yeah. So you have this this guy who wanted to go pursue a master's degree, both you know, for all of the financial reasons, but also he calls himself a lifelong learner and he wanted to like life of the mind. Isn't that you Chicago's thing? Like, I think that's their tagline, like life of the mind. He is now looking at picking up more part-time work. Like he's worked as a valley in the past. So he's probably going to go back to his boss and ask if he can pick up some shifts there to help him out with these payments, which can you imagine having three kids working Mm full-time job for the city and then picking up potentially more than one part-time job on the side. It's, yeah. It's a lot. No, it is a lot. Um, I cannot imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that's that's a lot. And, and But so many people are 
are having to do that. Yes. Um, so this was an executive action made by President Biden that the court overruled. And now Biden is saying that he might be able to use his authority under the Higher Education Act to pursue a different route to debt relief. Can you just get into what that act entails and what might it look like for him to take action using the act? Yeah, yeah. So that's the 1965 Higher Education Act. So it's been around for a while and it allows the Secretary of Education to basically, you know, lessen the burden of student debt. And so a lot of people, especially following the Supreme Court decision, but even before then, people were arguing that under that act, the president and his Department of Education have the authority to waive people's student debt. So um, we'll see. He's he's pursuing that now. I think some of the issues with that and maybe why he didn't pursue it to begin with is mm. the process is a little bit more burdensome and will likely take a bit more time. So it could be a while before we see the actual impact of that and like relief for people come to fruition. Um, I will be very interested to see also whether that ends up getting challenged. I Mm. have a good guess about what might happen. Do you know what a challenge could be to that? Like what's the hole someone could poke? Um, I imagine that and I'm not an attorney. I'm not an (laughs) expert in constitutional law or by any means, but I imagine you could make a similar argument that the executive this is going too far in terms of but you know the the word wave is in the legislation which to me implies you're waiving people's debts right so i don't know i don't know i okay. we'll see what happens with that but you know he's not just he not he not, not only announced that he also announced that he is putting in place this on ramp program because the uh, federal student loan repayment pause is ending this fall. Yes. Um, and, of course, that is causing a lot of stress for a lot of people because, um, you know, here in Illinois alone, more than 1.6 million people applied for that for relief before it was shut down. Yeah. And so, we have a couple counties that had the highest application. Yeah. Rate. Three yeah. congressional districts in Illinois had the highest application rates, response rates to relief. So this is a huge deal here. Um, I know uh, some studies have shown that people in Illinois more owe more than $60 billion in student debt. So a lot of people are now back on the hook for payments, right? Because interest will start accruing again on federal student loans in September and payments, the first payments will be due again in October. And what Biden has essentially said is because so many people are facing hardship, people will have a reprieve from being pursued by credit agencies starting uh, basically for a year starting this fall. The problem is that doesn't stop your interest from being accrued, right? Like, even if you're not being pursued by credit agencies, your interest is still building up on these loans. So I don't want people to be under the impression that they should stop paying. In fact, like the biggest advice I've been getting from folks addressed to these borrowers who are now facing the end of the repayment pause is like, do not ignore your loans. Do not ignore them. It is, I think a lot of people are tempted to just say like, I cannot, it's too much, you know? Like people are facing... Like having to cover their basic needs, right? Food, housing, the housing market's out of control, right? 
Um, so I think there's a temptation there to like hide your head in the sand. But the biggest piece of advice I've heard is do not ignore it. Figure out who your loan servicer is because it might have changed. It mm. probably has. Yep. And the other piece of advice I've heard is head to studentaid.gov because there are options for folks. Like there is income-based repayment plans that you might be eligible for, which could zero out your payments. Mm. Um, so definitely explore those options if you work or have worked for a nonprofit or yeah. for a government agency, check out public student loan forgiveness because the Biden administration has been churning out relief through that program like no other administration before it. So there are other forms of relief other than cancellation. Earlier, you, you talked about some of the impact this is having on low-income students of color and, and students of color in general. Um, and that just makes me think about another big decision yes. <laughs> that the Supreme Court issued last week. Uh, they ruled that it is unconstitutional to consider race in admissions at Harvard University and at the University of North Carolina. Um, this sounds pretty specific to me, but I think it is having some sweeping consequences. First of all, can you just clarify why this has implications for other universities in the U.S.? Yes. So this piece that was struck down by the court, this consideration of race in college admissions, the reason that this decision applies at so many other schools is because a lot of other colleges use that, have been using that practice of considering race in the admissions process to keep their I shouldn't say keep because <laughs> they, these campuses necessarily not have not necessarily been diverse in the in the past, but to try to diversify their campuses yes. locally, both Northwestern and University of Chicago did do it. And I just like this is something I have been telling everybody I've been talking to in the past few days because I think there's so much misinformation around how this really worked. This did not there were no racial quotas. That was that is not a thing mm. that was happening because that had already been struck down by the Supreme Court. Um, the consideration of race as it has been practiced for the past couple of decades was that, you know, you have a bunch of applicants mm -hmm. and a bunch of them at places like University of Chicago and Northwestern are super qualified and the school only has like, you know, a certain number of spots that they can give, of mm -hmm. course. So at that point, an admissions officer has to start looking at all of these things that are non-academic, like mm -hmm. um, where did they go to school, whether that's geographic, but also like their community. And then, you know, race is a factor mm -hmm. that some a lot of colleges were considering. And that's because it plays such a huge role in where what kind of barriers a student face barriers or privileges, right? Yes. Like a student of color is more likely to have gone to an under-resourced school district um, or in a school, they face racism yes. in so many steps of their educational background, right? Um, so it was really just one thing that was considered. Basically, it was used as a tiebreaker. So like so there's this idea I feel like floating around out there that a, a black student applies to Northwestern, and if you're considering race and admissions, like they that just gives them 
they get in because they're black, right? Mm. That's not the way it works. <laughs> like, it is one part of a look at an applicant, right? As a tool for diversity, um, which is what the Supreme Court had allowed up to this point, right? Like, they could not use it as a form of reparations because of a past Supreme Court decision. It was so limited, right? Like, Northwestern and New Chicago have no more than 6 or 7% black students in yeah. a city that has a huge black population, yes. right? Um, University of Chicago is on the south side of Chicago, and it has 6% of its students are black. Like, think about that. So then you're taking this tool away, right? Like, I don't know. I, I don't know what's going to happen, you know? Um, and it has this implication because, like I said, other selective colleges like Northwestern and U Chicago use the consideration of race to try to diversify their campuses. And they can't do that now because of the threat of legal repercussions, because the Supreme Court has basically said that's unconstitutional. Yeah. So, you know, you have universities now worrying about will they be challenged with a lawsuit if they do anything that's close to considering race. Right. So you've been looking into this for the last week or so. How are schools here in Illinois and across the country planning to ensure they have a diverse student body in light of the decision? Yeah, that is a great question. And, you know, I have been reporting on the lead up to this decision for a while. And basically, admissions officers haven't been saying much, right, Uh, for whatever reason. But we can guess at some of the stuff they might think about doing, which is like something like considering a race, so-called race-neutral proxies, you know, like socioeconomic status. And this is something that's been used in other states where affirmative action has been banned. In California and Michigan, there were um, referendums on affirmative action there, and it was voted to be unlawful. But that doesn't change the university's missions, right? Like the universities of California, this is a huge system, a state that has a very diverse population. They weren't like, oh, we give up on diversity. They're still trying to make these places equitable for students of color. Mm -hmm. So they invested a lot of money in, you know, trying to get more black and Latino students into their campuses with, I think, varying results. Um, So, you know, a lot of people have pointed to, like, California and Michigan, but the Center for Education and Workforce out of Georgetown did some modeling around using socioeconomic status. And what they found is, like, it makes some marginal progress, Mm. but not what considering a race does. And basically what they pointed out, which I think is really interesting, is that if you're not going to consider race, you basically need to, like, totally upend the way we do admissions, which a lot of people are calling for at this point. It's like if there is a moment in time to rethink the way we do admissions, especially at selective colleges in this country, like this is the time to do it. And one of the things I would like to point out, especially for our local institutions who are now thinking about trying to diversify their campuses more without being able to consider race, both Northwestern and University of Chicago practice legacy admissions and that is the basically the fancy term for saying they give special preference to the children of alumni, which 
by and large, advantages white and wealthy students, um, you know, whose parents went to Ivy League schools. And, you know, if we go back generations, these are institutions who were only open to a certain type of student being white and wealthy, yeah. right? So you some ha- of them were overtly and explicitly only open to, to <laughs> exactly. at one point in history. And yes. actually, legacy admissions was originally derived in order to keep certain students, namely like mainly Jewish and immigrant students out um, about 100 years ago. So you have these schools holding on to this policy, which is, you know, they can't, they don't publish these numbers. They're not required to publish a number of students they're admitting through this preference program. But like, you can only imagine that those those do take up some spots, right? So if oh. a lot of people have pointed out, like, is that not considering race in a way? You know, because these are mostly white students. Interesting. Um, Effectively. It yeah. Seems that it, it might. Yeah. Is it not another form of discrimination, right? So, um, you know, when I was doing reporting for my story on legacy admissions, neither University of Chicago or Northwestern would talk to me for it. And a lot of people are saying now that this SCOTUS decision has come down, like, these colleges are going to be facing even more pressure. And like basically it would be bananas for them to not let go of that, those policies at this if point. They, if their mission is, if they are as committed to their mission as they. Exactly. If they're truly committed to equity and diversity, as a lot of universities are saying, following the decision Friday in statements and all of that, then they will let go of these legacy policies. But we'll see if that if there is any movement Hmm. on that, especially locally, I'm very curious to see what will happen. Yeah. You're doing a call out to hear from some more folks about how the Supreme Court's decisions, specifically around student loans, are affecting them. How can folks share their stories with you? Yeah, so we'll be doing an official call out later this month where, you know, we're going to have a set of questions for folks around, like, what were they able to do during the payment pause as a result of not having to make student loan payments? How are they preparing for the end of the payment pause and such? If you're interested in sharing your story about student debt before that, please check out my staff page at WBEZ.org. My name is Lisa Phillip with one L, no S. Um, And just, you know, hit the contact button on there and please share your story with me because I am doing this long-term project on student borrowers and how this desire to pursue higher education is now having this financial impact on folks. Well, this is really important reporting that you're doing, Lisa. Thank you so much. Lisa Phillip, 1L, no S, is WBEZ's higher education reporter. Lisa, thank you again. Thanks for having me, Erin. I really appreciate it. You can find more of Lisa's reporting on student loans and college admissions on the WBEZ website, including a sort of fact check story about how Asian Americans are affected by affirmative action at universities. You can find those at WBEZ.org. And that's it for today. Thank you to Justin Bull and Sarah Stark for producing The Rundown and to Ariel Van Clee for editing the show. Haley Bloomquist was the engineer for this episode and our theme music is by Louis Weeks. And we love hearing from you on the show. How are you feeling about these conversations? What are you thinking about lately that you would want to hear about on The Rundown? You can email us at therundownpod at wbez.org. I'm Erin Allen. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow morning. Thank you.